We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Connie and I'm an alcoholic. I've been in recovery since 2006, but my sobriety date is August 9th of 2015. I'd like to just start with where I came from, what happened, and where I am today. I was born in Scotts, Arizona a long time ago. Um, I come from uh, two parents who were born in New York. My grandparents were immigrants from Italy. I have three, four older brothers that one lives in Virginia and uh, two live in Arizona. And um, that's, that's my family. I have, I had two loving parents growing up, nothing significant really in growing up. Uh, The only major significance in my life was when I was 13, my mother had a massive stroke. She was only 53 years old at that time. And I was 13. And after that, my dad pretty much was mother and father. My mother did survive the stroke. However, she was um, pretty disabled probably until the rest of her life, till she passed away. And she passed away when she was 79. I grew up in, in Arizona. I went to grade school, high school. I'm a product of Catholic school. As anyone who goes to Catholic school, they always do not want to be a disappointment. And in my grade school and high school, we were taught that anything less than perfect is a disappointment. Pretty much how I grew up, I was terrified of getting into trouble, terrified of my dad, but my dad was a loving dad because he was raising an only daughter. You know, I had four older brothers. They were all into sports. Um, My oldest brother is a physician now. He is also uh, an addict in recovery. My second oldest brother is retired Coast Guard. My third oldest brother is a captain in the fire department in, in Arizona. And my fourth oldest brother is a nurse in Arizona. All my brothers had careers. And when it came to me, I was pretty much lost in the mix, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. As a teenager, I felt I was friends with everyone. I wanted to fit in everywhere, but I didn't. I couldn't find where I belonged. When I graduated from high school, and mind you, back then, I didn't have a drink or a drug at all. And I used to always think when I was growing up and and coming into recovery, I I was thinking, how, how can I start my story? Who can I blame this addiction on? And I would look back and say, well, maybe it was my grandmother. She gave me whiskey on my gums when I was an infant. And then again, when I was a teenager, you know, when women have that time of the month, she would give me whiskey and tea to comfort any discomfort I had. That wasn't it. Um, That wasn't it at all. When I was uh, 20 or 19 years old, I met my husband. I've been married now for 37 years, and we have three wonderful children. Um, I met him young. And I figured the only way I could get out of my house and run was to get married. So two years later, my husband and I were married on November 22nd, 1987. I was 21. He was 19. I didn't know he was that young because he looked older when I met him. And 
how I knew he was that young, he asked me to go to his high school graduation. So then I figured I was robbing the cradle. Uh, anyway, he's a wonderful man. He stuck by me, but we were married at 21. I had my first child. And again, not much of a drinker. And the joke in the family at that time was Connie can sit at the kids' table because she doesn't drink. She doesn't even drink coffee. So I had my first child when I was 24, and I gained an incredible amount of weight. I gained 100 pounds with him. Four years later, I had my daughter. And then two years later, I had my youngest son. My oldest son is Christopher. My middle daughter is Elizabeth, and my youngest is my Vinny. After I had Vinny, we were in Arizona. We had bought our first house, my husband and I, and I was extremely heavy. My heaviest weight was 355 pounds. Um, we were at a function, a picnic, and you know, I was still in that mindset of wanting to belong. I'd never really fit in anywhere, never belonged, always self-conscious of how I looked, you know, just that typical low self-esteem. When we were at this picnic, my husband was talking to his chief because he worked for Phoenix Fire Department as a mechanic, and he didn't introduce me. And I stood there, and I, for the first time, I thought to myself, my husband's embarrassed of me. Probably about a week later, I got on the phone. This was in 2000, and I got on the phone with a doctor in Arizona, and gastric bypass surgery had just come out. It was the new thing for weight loss. And the only qualification I had for that was I was over 100 pounds overweight. I didn't have high blood pressure. I didn't have diabetes. I didn't have any of those onsets caused by being overweight, or they call it obese, and now they call it morbidly obese. So talk about feeling bad about yourself. And I decided I'm going to have this surgery. I want a quick fix. I want everyone to be proud of me. I want everyone to stop asking me to lose weight. And I did it. So in November of 2000, two weeks before Thanksgiving in that year, I had gastro bypass surgery. Within six months, so going into 2001, I lost over 200 pounds. With that came a lot of illness. I have chronic anemia now to this day, and I lost weight, and I thought everyone's going to be proud of me now. After that, I got this really amazing job working for a talent agent in Paradise Valley, Arizona. And I had the best boss ever because at five o'clock, she would send me over. We worked out of a resort. She would send me over to the lobby or the gift shop to buy two bottles of wine. I brought it back to her. She says, Connie, you want a glass of wine? And I'd had wine a few times in my life. I had maybe a wine cooler a couple times, got drunk once in my life earlier when I was a teenager and swore that wasn't for me, alcohol wasn't for me. But at that time, I thought, you know what? Yes, I think I'll have a glass of wine. We had a long day. And when I sat down and had that glass of wine, I thought I'd arrived. I said, here I am. I'm thin. I have this great job. I have a boss who's trusting me. And I drank. And I don't know if I've ever experienced such warmth and confidence at that time as when I had that first drink of wine. It led to another glass of wine. And then single night at five, she would send me over to the lobby again, buy two bottles, and we would have that every night. As time went on, at this time, I was about 32, 33 years old. At this time, I thought, well, let's go have some mixed drinks. And I was introduced to tequila. And when I had that first shot of tequila at that time, I felt, again, like I'd arrived. I felt that warmth and comfort. 
And I got a, a lot of confidence at that time. I began to find a voice. I found that I was looking at myself a little bit differently, accepting the fact that I was thin because before that, I still saw the same person. I still saw Connie who was 355 pounds and I couldn't understand why no one else saw the same person. When I looked in the mirror, I just saw a thin version, but I still saw the same person, if that makes sense. You know, after that, we would do shots. We would go to parties. I think my husband had more confidence in me because I was drinking and we were going to parties. The only difference was it was fun at that time. We had a good time. My husband and I were close together. Again, I'd arrived. At that time, this was about 2003, there was a situation in my neighborhood. And my husband is from um, Chicago, Illinois. That's where we reside reside today. We've been here since uh, April of 2003. We came back to Illinois. His parents are here. We sold our first home in Arizona, bought our second home in Joliet, Illinois. And I came back here and I felt like, you know, things are going to be better. My husband and I were having some problems in Arizona. I thought, well, maybe if I run again, like I did when I got married, run away from a a situation, I thought, well, maybe if I run away from the situation in Arizona, our kids will be in a better school. We have a nice, beautiful house. Everything will be okay. Well, my addiction and my alcoholism started to progress. And basically, Jose Cuervo became my best friend. He came, he became my boyfriend. He was all I thought about every day. As time went on, 2004, 2005, I was drinking more and more. I was doing at least a fifth of tequila a day, masking it, getting my kids off to school. And during that time, my husband also lost his job. So I had to get a job just to get insurance for our family. So I got a job at a school and I was there for a few years. And towards the end of my career at that school, I was coming home at lunchtime just to take a shot of tequila so the shakes would go away. I don't think that's a pretty good thing to be doing when you're working at a school, but I I lived close enough to go back and forth, you know, back home, get, get a shot to stop the shakes, go back for a few more hours come home, get everybody settled. And when everyone went to bed, I finished off that bottle. That lasted until about 2005. I needed to get a different job. I couldn't do that. I I did not like the secretary at that school. So I told my husband, you know, if we don't need, if I don't need to be at that school anymore, can I please just find a different job? He finally received a job at the job where he is right now. It's, he's a mechanic again in a, a town that's about 45 minutes 45 miles away from here. So he has a 90 mile drive every single day to work. Um, He said, that's fine. So I got a job at Walmart. I was doing okay there. And one day I was pulled over. Now I had had my Arizona driver's license at that time that didn't expire until 2025. And the only reason I kept that driver's license because it had my ideal weight and it had the best picture I could have ever taken. And I was not going to let go of that driver's license. Well, one morning on my way to work, I got pulled over for speeding and it was, it's a ridiculous area where I live, where it goes from one, you know, speed to another speed within a, not even a mile. And I didn't have a chance to slow down and I got pulled over and the police officer said to me, um, Concetta, which is my full Italian name, Um, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, you know, you can bond out of this ticket. 
for speeding. The bad news is your driver's license is suspended. And I thought I was going to die. I found out that I must have gotten a speeding ticket in Arizona and it transferred here. So my license was suspended. I had to call my husband. I had to get my driver's license in Illinois, which I hated. And I had to make sure the tickets that were paid in Arizona and I had to go to court. So that was in August of 2007. And my husband had driven me back and forth to work. I couldn't drive. I went and got my Illinois driver's license, which I hated. And I had a court date on October 9th of 2007. I went to court that day. My husband called me and he says, how'd it go? I said, fine. I have, my license isn't suspended. Everything is taken care of. And he asked me, what are you going to do now? Now, mind you, rewind a little while back from 2006 to 2007, my husband had already known I had a problem. And I guess I should have said this before. I was in treatment four times in 2006 when my husband saw that I had a problem. And the reason he knew a problem was in July of 2006, he found 13 bottles of tequila next to my daughter's Easy Bake Oven because she wanted to use it one night, which she never played with that at all. And he said, I think you have a problem. And in 2006, I did the usual four times in treatment really didn't want to get sober. I did have a taste of AA at that time. All I learned in that treatment those four times was that tequila was too expensive and vodka was cheaper and easier to hide. So I played around in AA from 2006, had a few stints of not drinking. I wouldn't even consider myself sober at that time because I had no intention of stopping. I wasn't paying attention in, in AA at all at that time. And I just was trying to get away with doing what I was supposed to be doing, making my husband happy, being a good mom, and figuring out how I could fit drinking and all of that to the point where I was even taking a Sharpie and marking the bottles so I knew where I left off so I wouldn't get too drunk. And as for myself, and I'm sure we all know, that doesn't work very well. So I did that all the way till October 9th, and I went to court, like I said, got my license back, stopped home. My husband called me and said, how are you doing? I said, good. He asked where I was going. I said, home. He goes, okay, call me when you get home. So there's a Mexican restaurant on the way back from the court. I stopped there and got, it's called El Burrito Loco. I stopped there and got some tacos, and I stopped at CD Liquors, and I bought a pint of vodka because I was going to celebrate. Again, I got all of this done behind me and I was going to celebrate. And that was 11 o'clock in the morning. During that time from 2006 to 2007 also, I was a pretty much a morning till evening drinker. So I progressed to I was alcohol dependent. So I did get that. I came home. And also I was clever enough to make sure that I had Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke so I could mix it together, throw the bottles away so no one would find it. So I didn't have to hide them anymore. So about 11 o'clock, I came home, had my cocktail and my tacos. And my husband called me about one and he asked how I was. And I said, I'm great. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, nothing. He goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Walgreens. I have a headache. And my husband knew something was wrong and he knew that I probably was close to being intoxicated or intoxicated. He said, do not leave. I'm coming home. And like I said, my husband lived 45 minutes away or 45 miles away, which is about an hour away 
from that time of that phone call until I hung up, I got into the, I must have gotten in the car. I must have went and bought a pint, another pint of vodka. Um, the only thing is I don't remember anything because at 2.30 that afternoon, I blocked, I blacked out behind the wheel. Um, I blacked out in front of a, wheel, a truck, passed in front of him, and hit a light pole. The next thing I remember is waking up at 6 o'clock at night in the hospital with my parents' rosaries not handcuffed to the bed. That was a pivotal moment for me. I could hear when I woke up, I had a sitter, so I must have said something that I wanted to kill myself. I could hear my husband crying and talking to the police officer. And also during that time, I was seeing a psychiatrist trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, And at that time, I was admitted because, like I said, I have chronic anemia. And the only reason I didn't get a DUI was because my hemoglobin was low. And at that time, I needed a blood transfusion which I've had many in my years after gastric bypass surgery, iron infusions, blood transfusions, just not healthy at all from that surgery. And that, but that time that saved me from a DUI. I so deserved it, but I didn't get one. So I was admitted and this was October 10th, 2007 was my first sobriety date, I'll say. I was admitted, I received a blood transfusion, and my psychiatrist came up to my room, and where my room was faced, it was facing an Alano club is where I went to my first AA meetings, and it was faced, it was, it's called Maury's Table, which is a bar, and my psychiatrist said, there's where you're going to spend the rest of your life, and all I was thinking was, Maury's Table, that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life? But it was a choice I had, either go back to Alcoholics Anonymous or go and sit at the bar for the rest of my life. And so October October 10th, 2007 was my first day sober. And October 12th, 2007, I walked back in that club with every, every, like I admitted, complete defeat. I was defeated. I met a really nice gentleman who said to me, welcome home. I sat down with him and I cried. And for the first time in my life, I admitted that I was powerless and I admitted that my life was unmanageable. And I never had that come out of my mouth before because I thought I could control it. I thought if I go to AA, I'm going to find a loophole. I'm going to find anything so I do not have to go to this place ever again. And when I had that welcome, his name was Surrey Washington. He's passed away. He made me feel like I belonged there. And when I walked in there, I actually said, now I've arrived. I did um, I did my first AA meeting. I worked the steps. I, was, I got a sponsor. Everything was going well, I thought. I did get a job at a, um, a Stepping Stones. It's a treatment center in Joliet as a transporter. Then I started sponsoring girls up in their women's extended care. And this was about 2010 now. And in our area, even though it's Alcoholics Anonymous in our area, heroin was beginning to become uh, pretty much an epidemic. And a lot of the girls that were coming into Stepping Stones not necessarily were alcoholics. They did have a desire to stop, not drink, but I had to learn a lot about heroin and that addiction to sponsor. A lot of them really liked going to AA with me as I did because it's just a great program, right? It's you work the steps, you get a sponsor. And the most important thing is you don't drink. 
or use at that time as that's what I would talk to them about. I was doing well. I was sponsoring 13 girls. I was in control. I was doing the steps for them. And basically for about seven years, I thought I was doing what I was taught. I thought I was doing it the way the big book taught me. But what I didn't realize is I was doing it for them. I was working harder than they were. My life had become become I, 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 me, 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 and not them. In a, in a 2014, so that that went on for a while. You know, I was going to meetings, sponsoring, doing everything. I felt like I was the shining star of AA. In 2014, it was strange because I met a woman who was just like me. She was my age. She had children. The only difference is her husband divorced her, gave up on her. And I can remember a time when my husband told me if I ever drank again, he would leave me. And her husband left her. She was just troubled. And I thought, wow, I have someone that is just like me, same age, everything. And I was going to help her. And I thought in my crazy mind, I was going to save her. She came to meetings with me. I sponsored her again. I, 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 me, me, me. She is going to do what I tell her to do. I gave her the book. I went through the steps with her. And it was frustrating because she wasn't listening to me. That went on for a while. And in December, December 29th of 2014, she texted me and said, I met this guy. He's going to give me all the crack I want. I think I'm done with AA. And her name was Kim. And I said, you know what, Kim? Fuck you. Go to hell. I'm done with you. She passed away on January 2nd, 2015. And that was the last thing I said to her. And it crushed me. And I was like, see, God, the program doesn't work. You don't work. You let her die. She wasn't listening to me. I'm done. I turned my back on God. I turned my back on the program. I didn't call my sponsor. I didn't believe anything worked. And on August 9th, 2015, I lost all of my defenses and I went and I bought a bottle and I came home. And this time my husband knew something was wrong and he came home halfway through that pint. And I looked at him and I said, in my head, I said, this is it. He told me if I ever drank again, he would leave me. And he asked me, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. And he says, I know what, what happened. And I said, what? He said, you stopped going to meetings. You stopped going to church and you didn't call your sponsor. And I was like, where did that come from? I never, he, he didn't like me being in AA. Like I didn't know where that came from. And he said, I just want you to go to bed right now. He won't tell the kids, just go to bed. I never prayed so hard in my life that night. It was a Saturday. And I fell asleep and something woke me up really early. And this was my spiritual awakening. I know it was because I just heard God. I, I held on to Kim's death as if it was my fault. Again, like I said, because she wasn't doing what I was, I told her to do. And because of that, she died. And I heard God say, you know, Connie, you've got to get up. You have to let go to live for today. And that's what he said. But the most important thing he said to me was, but you have to le let me lead the way. And that's God. 
And that's when I realized what that phrase, thy will be done, not mine. And that hit me really hard. I got up on a Sunday. I called my sponsor, which was the most embarrassing thing I thought I could ever do. I thought I was weak, admitting the truth. And on Monday, I was right back at a meeting, telling on myself, telling the truth, and starting over. And I kicked myself because I would have had eight years that year. But it's okay because I really plugged in this time. I really understood what Alcoholics Anonymous meant. I really understood when someone reaches their hand out for you, you grab it. You don't reach out to them. They reach out to you and you grab it. Uh, Things changed. It was just a whole different experience. I I did my steps again with my sponsor. I did a fourth and fifth again with her, and I didn't realize all the things that were missing. I didn't realize that I had a resentment towards my mom because she had her stroke. I didn't realize that until she passed away. And it was funny, rewind back to 2008, I was six months sober at that time, and my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I went home to Arizona and I was crying and crying. And I'm like, mom, you know, why is it, why are you, ha- why is this happening to you? You've had such a hard life. And she said to me, says who? Says who? You that I had a hard life? She said, I had a blessed life. And she told me, quit making everything about you. And I was like, holy crap, like, I do make everything about me. And I, and I should have listened to her then, but it was back there. It was pushed in the back. And when I relapsed, it came to the front and I said, wow, she was right. I did make everything about me and I don't, you know, there are certain things I do, but for this moment, for this time, you know what? I really put God first and he really does lead the way right now. Today I do work in recovery. I work, I used to work for a treatment center. I worked there for 10 years. I have a limited amount of girls that I sponsor women. I should say, Uh, We work the steps. We do them really well. In 2020, obviously COVID hit. Everything shut down. And only by the grace of God, my husband was afraid because I was essential worker, but I had to stay at home. And only by the grace of God, I found Zoom. And I found Zoom meetings. And I found meetings that I could stay in all day and listen and talk to people. And I really understood that, wow, these people are here for me. And I'm there for them. Fast forward now, today, I have a great job. I didn't walk in there and say, I've arrived. I walked in there and said, I am blessed to have this. I am blessed to help people. I'm blessed to be able to share my story. If it made sense, I hope so. But you know what? I'm grateful. And every single day when I am when I lay my head down, I thank God. And even if I have a bad day, If I can be grateful for being sober, I'm grateful for being sober. And I'm so grateful for being here and sharing my story. And thank you all for listening. And I'll keep coming back. Thank you, Connie. (laughs) My husband came home. Did you hear the bathtub? No, I didn't. (laughs) Well, it's okay because I heard the story now and now we like him. I like him. We like him. (laughs) He can come home and be distracting. Yeah, he's home now. (laughs) Well, mine will probably start the washing machine. That's hilarious. I know. But it was probably five minutes. I don't even know. (laughs) Well, it was only 30. It was less than 30. So that means I get to ask you lots of questions. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So 
I want to take you back to between January 2nd of 2015 and August 9th of 2015 after Kim's passing. Mm -hmm. Did you just immediately stop going to meetings? Did it Mm -hmm. slowly teeter out? I just basically was so, so shocked because I, I went back and I looked, when was the last time I talked to her? And that was on the 29th of December. And I was shocked and I was shocked at my behavior. And I was like, yep, I'm done. And, you know, I would talk to people, people called me about it, but I didn't go to a meeting after that. I think my last meeting was New Year's because we had a, like a New Year's uh, alcathon. And that, I think that was my, my last meeting. And then I stopped going to church right at the end of January. So and then it was just one thing after another. I just didn't care. So at that point, you were eight years. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So you were text. Now you could just tell me to shut up, but I'm thinking no. you had texted her, "fuck off" or whatever. Mm-hmm. She was your sponsee. Yes. Would you talk to one of your sponsees that way today, or would you react differently? No. No, I've, I learned my lesson on how I react. It taught me how to respond and it taught me how to pause before I say anything. And it's not about me. If that's a decision that someone wants to make where they just don't want to come back or, or maybe we're, we're talking about something and they don't agree. I I take it very seriously on how I speak to someone today. What a hard, hard, hard way to learn mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. I actually got rid of that text message a couple of years ago. Oh. <laughs> yep. Good for you. Yeah. I think about, I, I think about the, the growth. What it reminds me of is we keep coming back to these rooms and we keep learning more and more and more about how to be a better person. And we're not all at the same place at the same time, but we're all on that same path. Right. Right. I don't know. I made a joke in a meeting this morning to a friend of mine on a Zoom meeting and it and someone else got offended on her behalf. <laughs> like made a big stink, but it didn't offend her because we're both, you know, she's Irish and it's very hard to offend her. <laughs> right. But but this it's the the reminder that Oh, right. So we're all on a different, it's okay. That person's allowed to be annoyed with me, even though she doesn't know what she's really being annoyed about. Anyways, whatever. See, I make everything about me too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm not following Tara. I have no idea what you're saying. Let's get back to you. So no, I get it. And I'm fine with, I get it. Totally get it. Okay. Um, I'm still processing it. Right. I'm still like, wait, what? I offended somebody. Not everybody likes me. (laughs) So hello, like that, that's how I was before I relapsed was, and I was talking to someone and, and, you know, I think I get so, you know, you, you, you talk about, sometimes I get uncomfortable about, you know, talking about myself and how I got here. And I was talking to someone the other day of being responsible and, and caring and loving. And during those eight years, I couldn't believe how controlling I was. And I, I don't know if it was ramifications of, never does the self-esteem. Maybe I I was feeling like I had all this self-esteem and I didn't even talk about starting to gain weight again. Like after I quit drinking, I started to gain weight again after losing all that weight. And 
going through everything that I'd gone through, I started gaining weight again. And that was another thing to have to deal with. And I'm dealing with that today. And I'm, but what I've done differently now is not looking for the quick fix and the program. We can utilize this program in every aspect of our life, every app, because there's lots of things we're powerless over, but it's amazing when you turn it over to God, he does give us a lot of power. He gives me power to get up in the morning. This is my sixth day today being back at the gym. And I've I've limited myself taking one day at a time, taking one step at a time and getting to the gym. And it's amazing when when I'm fighting it, you know, you can feel the resistance you're fighting him. And when I just let him in, I'm like, oh yeah, I made it to the gym. It's a Friday. I, I was like, yay, thank you. And I have so much more gratitude. And right, going back to Kim, how I treat people. I had a I had another good friend pass away in 2020. She died of an overdose, and I was probably the last person that she saw. And it brought back Kim. She wasn't coming to treatment. I was giving her options to come, and I would take her. And she, you know, wanted that one day to do laundry and one day to do this. And when she wouldn't come, it was on a Wednesday when she wouldn't come with me that day, but wanted to go the next day. I said, you know what, Heather? Okay. And I told her I loved her. And if that was the last thing she heard, at least she knew that. And she must have passed away between that Wednesday or Thursday night. And then they found her on September 27th. So, but I, I, I was sad. I didn't make it about me because it, I had nothing to do with that. It was a decision. And, and that's the things I remember. And I always tell people that I love them. Like the last thing I'll say to someone. So yeah, that changed me. (laughs) Do you think that in the first part of your sobriety, well, let me, I have so many questions. Okay. Let me go with this one first and I'll try not to forget the other one. Do you think in the first part of your sobriety, before your 2015 drink, drinking, um, that you had a different sort of relationship with your higher power? It was different because I, I can remember sometimes saying, you know what, God, I think I'll handle today. And not saying it to him, but thinking it, I got this. Didn't pray, maybe. There were days when I didn't pray. There were days when I didn't, upon awakening, I didn't think about the day ahead. And when I came home, I didn't do what I was supposed to do is, is kind of reflect on the day. And if I needed to make an amend or admit I was wrong, I just didn't think that because I don't think I was ever wrong. I was wrong a lot, but that was my mindset. And, and honestly, how I made it eight years, I don't even know. I don't even know only by the grace of God, or maybe I needed a lesson and he let me suffer because I do look back and go, I was miserable. I was miserable at that time too. It's crazy. It's just crazy. The lessons that, you know, God will put us through, you know? Do you see people in the program today that you can relate to the first stint of your sobriety where you see that they're sober, but they're still suffering. I do. How do you respond to that? You know, the only, if, if it's talked about, or if we talk about, you know, why are you happy or how do you get through bad days or earth? But I know a lot of people who 
I don't think they've really surrendered or they haven't built that relationship with their God of their understanding. I don't know if they've, if they came to believe yet, you know, you can tell in how they react to, to things. You know, I, I learned to celebrate. I don't, I don't have anniversaries where my, I don't have um, anniversaries with my mom. Somebody calling in. There we go. Okay. Is your husband calling in from the bathtub? No, no, I don't know who it was. I'm sorry. That's okay. okay. That's okay. Anyway. We're good. We're good. We're good. Um, sorry. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I forgot the question. Now, oh my gosh, I'm so um, sorry. You were saying about other people mm-hmm. about being happy. Yeah. I don't know. You know, and I and I guess I can't judge. I think they have to find their own way. I see a lot of you know, and I'm trying to try not to judge. I see. I had a lot of ego. I felt, you know, whenever I walked in the room and everybody knew me, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm here. And I see a lot of people who are kind of ego driven and they have to find their own way. You know, I don't, I don't judge, I guess. I don't take their inventory. I learned all of this. You know, I didn't learn that before. I don't take someone's inventory. If they're being shitty, well, they can be shitty. You know, Um, I don't take it personal. I try to lead by example. I don't know. You know, I try. There's a difference between working the steps and doing the work. Oh, let's hear that. There's a big difference because I can work the steps. I can work the steps. So yeah, I'm on step one. I read the book, but doing the work is applying it in your life. And I, I'll see a lot of people, I did first, I did the first step and then still in that same behavior. I, I believe in God and still not having a higher power or debating or, you know, whatever. And it's like, you could see that. And so, oh, I work step 12. Are you helping anyone? Are you sponsoring anyone today? Oh no. Oh no, not yet. Not yet. Well then let's go back. Let's try and go back and do that again. And there's a difference between putting, you got to put the work in and do the work. I heard an old timer say that. I was like, that makes sense. I've heard so many people say so many things, but I just ignore them until I'm ready to to digest it, right? Mm-hmm. What is that? That um, when the student's ready, the teacher arrives. She will arrive, um, yeah. yeah. But the teacher's there every day. We just have to show up for class. <laughs> yeah. So your, your relapse then... For the first time, I've heard these stories before where they had time and then they relapse and then they have better, stronger sobriety now. I've heard that mm-hmm. recipe before, but this is the first aha moment time I'm having with you, Connie, where I'm thinking, well, shit, like she needed that. You absolutely needed that to have serenity. Do you have serenity today? Are you going to look back in eight years from now and say you're miserable today? Tell me no, how it's different. I'll have, I'll have eight years. Uh, on August 9th of this year, every, you know, every day I have a challenge with work or whatever. And again, it's like, I, I make sure in the morning, I never had a routine before I go to the same meeting every day at 7am. I wake up at the same time, you know, for me, recovery is repetitive. If, If I'm consistent in something and I stay with that, it's been working. So why I'm not going to change it. And so if I don't go to my 7 a.m., I'll do, thank God for Zoom, I'll plug into a Zoom 
meeting at work and I'll listen and I'll tune in and I'll get some wisdom. And then that helps you through the day. As long as I continue to stay plugged in and do my readings in the morning, go to my 7 a.m., do what I have to do, help someone, work with a, with another alcoholic, honestly, and not have the whole world on my shoulders, like 20 people on my shoulders like I did before, it, it seems to be, and yes, at the end of the day, I find serenity. I wake up with untreated alcoholism. I have to remind myself that too. I need my medicine. I wake up and if if I don't have my medicine, I thank God I can start my day over if something goes wrong, but yeah. How does your husband feel about the program now? Well, he understands now why I do what I do. And he understands now that I found a boundary because back then I was like, I was at every eight o'clock meeting at night. I was at every function, every picnic, every fellowship. And he's like, when are you going to spend time at home? Well, come with me. I don't want to go with you. Well, then okay, I'm just going to go. And I, I think it's, it's, is it to the wives or when the alcoholic puts Alcoholics Anonymous or puts the program before the family, the family has to understand. And I had, I needed a boundary. I need, I needed, I needed a healthy boundary in AA and I found that too. Yeah. (sighs) All right. Well, I really appreciate your time and your story. Is there anything that you left out that you'd like to share? I I go back to uh, my mom and just a little bit about her, that when she had her stroke, I was young. She had um, she lived with me for a little while here in, in Illinois, and I just treated her so bad when she was here. And And like I said, I didn't realize when I had relapsed that I had such a resentment to her. But I can remember her always saying, and I couldn't understand it until today, she would always use the phrase, I go, hi, mom, how are you? And she says, I'm fine, thank God. And she thanked God every day. And I just couldn't understand. I guess I thought, how could this God do something to this wonderful woman? And what I learned from that after she passed away is, she wanted me to celebrate her and not mourn her. And she just had told me, she goes, I just want you to have faith. And I feel like that was her gift to me was her faith because I found it after I relapsed. I was like, now I know what she meant to always thank God, no matter what. And she never, she never was why me ever. Even when she got pancreatic cancer, she was never why me. And so that's what I, that's pretty much what I, had gotten from her and I'll keep that with, I feel her more now than ever. Mm. Yeah. She was wonderful. (laughs) Did she have lots of spiritual books and stuff that you got to thumb through? I got her Bible and her rosaries when I, when I got in the car accident. So I kept those rosaries in my car. I have both my parents' rosaries and I always just kept them in the car. And when I, when I had blacked out behind the wheel when I had my accident, those were in my hand. So someone put those in my hand because that's what I woke up to. And I did hear you say that. Didn't You didn't have handcuffs. Yeah. You had the rosaries. And so that, that was your mother and your father's? Yeah. Yep. And you got her. So if someone put them there. Yeah. Some Because they would have had to take them out of the center council area and put them in my hand. 
So somebody did that. I don't know who. I asked my husband. He said no. So, yeah, I think someone someone did it. So I think I had an angel. A mom and a dad angel. Mm-hmm. For sure. There's a quote by Lincoln that I love. I think it's something along the lines of everything I am and have done, I owe to my angel mother. I'm totally butchering it, but it's just very, very sweet. It's true. You know, it's true. I don't get stuck on, on my parent. You know, I, I hear a lot of people and, and I know it's different for everyone and I don't cry or mourn them on the day they passed away or their birthdays. I celebrate them and I thank them. And now I, when you asked about, do I have serenity? I do. And I never felt that before. And it's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. All right. Well, final question for the alcoholic out there still suffering. What message would you like to leave? You know, just keep coming back. Simple. Try it. Keep coming back. And I have a, a old timer in my morning meeting that says, don't drink, go to me, go to meetings, get a sponsor. And I always like to say at the end of that, do the work. Do the work. Simple. Do the work. It Don't is. give up. We put a lot of work into our drinking. So just put like half of that energy into the program right. and you'll be fine. And you'll be, you know what? You'll, you'll do great and you'll be blessed. That's for sure. As they say, you know, you'll be blessed. And it comes like in the promises, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they'll always materialize if we work for them. Thank you so much, Connie. Thank you. I appreciate this. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.